I hope there are some of you here today who normally are not in church. This is a good day to go if you're going to go one day a year. Uh, at the churches that I served up in Wisconsin, we probably had close to double our congregation on Easter. And uh, I want to give you a little hint, though, that probably the better Sunday to come, or the better day to come, than Easter is Good Friday. If I were to say what my favorite day is in the church year, I think it is Good Friday. And I think the Good Friday service is the one that gives me the greatest joy. Now, you might wonder why that is, because Good Friday is about death and Easter is about resurrection. And the reason is that I can never get very far past thinking of my sin and of the hopelessness of my life. And you would be interested to know it was out in California before I came and brought my sin to the cross for washing. And so I can't get very far from the cross. I can't get very far from seeing Jesus pouring his blood out to wash me from my sin. And so that's the reason why I always feel just a little bit of tension on Easter because I think there are a lot of you here that are cheating who have not celebrated Good Friday, and maybe some of you who have never brought your sins to the cross. And so I just want to give you a little hint. You know, there are tricks to every store, and the church is a store. And the trick at this store is, you know, how when you go into Sam's or some of those stores, you have to, like, take the chains and, no, Menards. You know, they always block you from going into the store when you come in the exit, which it opens. I don't know why they call it an exit. Well, well, the trick in this store, which sells salvation, but not for money, for confession of sin, the trick here is the cross and then the resurrection. And so the reason we're joyful today is all of us have, have entered through the cross. And we make no bones about the fact that when it says in Corinthians, we have been studying Corinthians here, and when it says in Corinthians... Uh, you know, murderers and greedy people and homosexuals and adulterers and of such were some of you. It says this about the Corinthian church. Well, of such were some of us. We have brought every kind of sin you can imagine to the cross. And so we are filled with joy because Jesus has taken the burden off of us. So anyhow... Welcome to this celebration. Um, I'm going to go back over what we do each uh, worship service as we go through a part of Scripture. When Jesus was here on earth, he constantly said when he did things so that Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was unbelievably rigid about Scripture, and so are we. And so we always study Scripture, and that's the center of our worship services. Hi, Nana. It's good to have you here. And so we're going to go back over what was read earlier in the service, which is John chapter 20, probably the, the definitive account of what happened that day. Now, uh, we have it up on the screen so you can see it, and I want to start with that first phrase, now on the first day of the week. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God commanded the Israelites as a part of their identifying with him that since he had rested on the seventh day, 
that they were to rest on the seventh day. And the seventh day is Saturday. And so you would think that we would be gathered here on a Saturday because that's the day of rest. But from the moment when on the first day of the week Jesus was raised from the dead, from that point on all Christians have changed our Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And that's the reason you're here on the first day of the week because we're commemorating Jesus being raised from the dead on Sunday. And so Sunday is the Christian Sabbath and you can understand that. That this is the day that we would always worship because we start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, on the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, note also that the witnesses to the resurrection that we see in this account um, were not the important people who were in Jerusalem at the time. And so you have to kind of think about who are the important people in town here. It wasn't the mayor. It wasn't the sheriff, it wasn't the professors, it wasn't the president of the university, and it wasn't Tom Green, especially this week. (laughs) All right, I'm back. The witnesses to the resurrection were not the big and important men of the world, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, but who? Mary Magdalene, and several other women, if you have to put the gospel accounts together, but there were several women with her. It's just that they pick her out to note. And we see in verse 2, what? We see that she says, what? She ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And you have to know in the gospel of John that when it refers to the disciple that Jesus loved, that's John. And so it's a way that he talks around the fact that he himself is writing about himself, the other disciple. And he always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved uh, because the relationship of Jesus to John was much more tender than any of the disciples. There were three disciples that were closest to Jesus. Jesus had favorites, and it's okay if you do, just not your children, all right? And the three favorites were Peter, James, and John. And among the three favorites, the favorite was John. That was the one that Jesus really, really loved. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now you notice that she says we and that indicates that there were other women with her. Okay? Now, the rich and powerful and proud did not have Jesus reveal his resurrection to them. And I want you to think about that. Because it's really important. The Bible says from cover to cover that God resists the proud. He resists them. And so one thing you might conclude from this is it's not good for you to be proud. It's not good for me to be proud because who would you least like to have resist you through your life? It's true that as a shepherd, that's what a pastor is, that I have gone through life watching God resist men, many of them in the church, Many times I have said to the men, you realize that God is resisting you, don't you? 
And the men are just oblivious because they're hell-bent on saving their pride. And so when I note here that God resists the proud, you say, well, it doesn't show he resists the proud here. And I say, well, what would you characterize the fact that he doesn't show the resurrection of his son to the rich and to the proud? Is that not resistance? Instead, he shows his son, his resurrection, Jesus reveals himself to what Calvin refers to as the little flock. The little little clump of sheep. And that's a good picture of what Mary Magdalene, or Mary and the other uh, two disciples are. It's just a tiny group among the tiny group. All right? But I want you to note something else. Is that you would think that the reason that Jesus would reveal himself to this little flock is that they believed. In other words, there must have been something about them that they did that was right. You know, they were, they were ready to believe. They were right there, ready to see Jesus in his resurrected state, right? But even when you go to the people that he revealed himself to, what you see is they just didn't believe. Now, I want to hammer this home because we believe today that we have to do something to earn the forgiveness of God. And so we look at something like this and we think, well, you know, those disciples had earned the right to see Jesus' resurrection, whereas the Pharisees and Sadducees had conspired to kill Jesus. So, of course, Jesus would reward the one and and not reward the other. But you do remember that the disciples all abandoned Jesus, don't you? And so they didn't deserve it because they stuck with him to the, to the very martyr's pole, to the tree, right? We know they didn't do that, although we do know John was there. Because Jesus gave over his mother to John to care for him as, as his mother. And so I want to nail this down that the disciples did not deserve what they got. And the way to nail this down is, I want you to see their unbelief here at the tomb. And I want you to see Mary's unbelief prior to the tomb, at the tomb. And I want you to see that Mary doesn't believe even after John does believe. Okay? But first, I want you to see what reason they had to believe. And those reasons are all the places in the Gospels where we have an account of Jesus telling the disciples, I'm going to be killed, and then I will rise from the dead. And not just generally I'll rise from the dead, but three days later I'll rise from the dead. In other words, everything that's happening here, Jesus has told them it's going to happen over and over and over and over again, and they don't believe. Matthew 16, 21 to 23, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, in other words, the bigwigs in town, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, what was Peter's response here? Well, Peter took him aside privately, you know, graciously. Peter took Jesus aside graciously, privately. And he said to him, and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And so there we see that Jesus began to teach them that he would be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's what it says in verse 21 of Matthew 16. Then John 2, beginning with verse 18, the Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So always this issue of what authority Jesus had. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the important men want to know what his authority is. Does he have a badge? You know, does he have an office? You know, has he been ordained, right? What sign do you show us for your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, so they're thinking temple, temple, all right? The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then a parenthetical note from John, he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. In Matthew 12, 39 and 40, he, Jesus, answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man, and that's how Jesus referred to himself again and again, the Son of Man, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then Matthew 16, a couple chapters later, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. In Mark 8, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Luke 9, the Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, it's possible that the disciples were so scandalized by Jesus saying that he would be killed by their religious leaders that they never heard anything Jesus said after because the formulation is always, he says, he must be killed. He says he'll be rejected by the religious leaders and then he'll be killed. And it might be that that just so blew them away that they could never hear what came afterwards every time, three days later, I'll rise from the dead. Three days later. And they're just fixated on the fact that he will be killed by their religious leaders. They can't comprehend it. After the transfiguration, Jesus again told them what was about to happen. In Matthew 17, 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. It's clear again. Then Mark 9, 9, coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then we have this little parenthetical note from Mark. He says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what, quote, rising from the dead meant. I'm remembering, um, I'm remembering something that happened in Bloomington here a number of years ago. Um, 
very, very, very proud man. Unbelievably arrogant. It just oozed from his pores. And he came, he showed up at church one Sunday. And I, I'd never met him before. I knew nothing about him, but I did see what oozed from him. Very handsome, young, well put together, a specimen. Every woman was interested. And I, th- I want to say he came a couple of times and immediately everybody knew his name. And then, all of a sudden, he must have been what, 25, 27, somewhere around there. Blonde, good looking. And then all of a sudden, I heard that he had been on the campus talking to two other people and he dropped dead. He just dropped dead. But that's not what made me remember him just now. The reason I remember him is if he had said to me that Sunday, I will drop dead on the campus and then I will rise from the dead. I don't think I'd have trouble understanding what he meant by rise from the dead. And yet the disciples came out of the transfiguration discussing what he meant by rise from the dead. I mean, it was just absolutely inconceivable to them that Jesus would rise from the dead. The other interesting thing about this man is like family, like man. I went over to the hospital where they had taken the body. And... I met with the family. I'd never met them before. I never knew him, but there was his brother and some other people from his former church somewhere out of town. I don't remember where it was. And I wanted to go in and pray with them with the body, which is what you do if you're a pastor. And first, they met me outside, and they asked me what, what witness, what confession I had about their brother. And I couldn't figure out what they meant. And then I realized that what they were asking me was, did I have faith that if we went back in there and prayed that he'd be raised from the dead? Well, you know, you don't want to be a bearer of bad tidings to people that have just lost a loved one. But I wasn't going to tell them that, yes, I had faith that God would raise him from the dead. And so I was in an awkward position of having to try not to... rebuke their pride at that moment, and yet to not lie. And so guess what? I was prohibited from going back and praying with that young man and his family. I didn't have the right witness. I think they knew what raised from the dead meant there that day, right? I think it was very clear to them that God had told them they should pray for his resurrection. If there was any doubt in their hearts that God wouldn't do it, and they didn't want anybody back there who had any doubt in his heart. Well, I actually didn't have any doubt. I had certainty. And he would not be raised from the dead. Well, Jesus says over and over and over and over again, that he must be killed after being rejected by the religious leaders. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. 
And after the transfiguration, we see Peter and James and John keeping the matter to themselves, Mark 9:10, and discussing what rising from the dead meant. So it's obvious that the disciples are having real difficulty understanding what Jesus is talking about with respect to the resurrection. They're confused. And this pattern of Jesus telling them, and yet it going right over this, their heads, it just continues. In Mark 9, they will kill him, the Son of Man, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Matthew 17, 22. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You know, you would think that if he's going to be killed, but he's going to be raised, that the description wouldn't just be they were filled with grief. I would say confusion if they took both parts. Apparently, they kept believing that he would be killed. Otherwise, why would they have grief? But they had no faith in his resurrection. In Luke 18, he says, He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And so I want you to understand that he keeps telling them over and over that he will be killed, and then he will be raised from the dead. And that here, he gives the specifics about what will precede them killing him. And so those who saw him being mocked, spit on, seeing his clothes being, having lots cast for them, they would, if they remembered this, the mocking, the insulting, the spitting on him and falling, they would have seen him as he went to the cross with his back ripped to shreds, right? But they still don't get the raise from the dead. And then, just prior to his trial and crucifixion, in the upper room with the disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus gave them one last chance to believe in the resurrection. He said, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now listen, after you read all this, you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples and of Mary Magdalene. You ask yourself, would you have believed that he was going to be raised from the dead? And the answer is clearly no. Right? We see that Mary Magdalene herself didn't believe. We see that Peter himself didn't believe. Did you notice that here? Did you notice that it says in verse 8 what? Well, if you look at verse 8, It says, so the other disciple, remember that John is speaking about himself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And so you had a race between John and Peter. And John was the the sprint, and Peter was the marathoner. And so at the end, Peter outpaced John, and he got there first, right? And it says, so the other disciple, which would have been uh, John who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And what does it say? It says, he saw and believed. It doesn't say they. It says, he saw and believed. And so, it's very clear that Mary Magdalene still did not believe Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And the implication here is that Peter didn't believe. All right? Now, what's my point? My point is that you don't come with anything in your hands to Jesus Christ. You don't come with anything but your sin. What is required for you to come to Jesus is your sin. That's what's required. In other words, what's required to come to Jesus with is our failures, our sin, our humility. We don't come with faith. It's so clear here that Mary Magdalene and Peter and John are not coming with faith. And they have been given every single reason to have faith. They've been told over and over and over again, and now they've seen the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene had seen the empty tomb already, and she still didn't have faith. Right? And from the other Gospels, we know that other disciples had also been told by Mary that she had not found Christ at the tomb. And how many of the disciples came to see what was going on at the tomb? Only two. And of those two, how many of them believed having seen the tomb? Only one. And who was that one disciple? It was the disciple that Jesus particularly loved. And so Calvin says that God used the empty grave to nourish their faith like an unborn child in the womb. That's the image he uses for the weakness of their faith. Little babies in the womb, and about all they can do is roll in the amniotic fluid and kick the belly. And that's such a beautiful image of us. Then we see Mary. Mary was standing outside the tomb. Joyful? No, she's weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. So clearly Mary did not believe in Jesus' resurrection. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. We don't know what angels look like, but we know that they induce terror. And here we know that they appeared something like men. But God made it clear that they weren't men by one thing. And what was that one thing? Well, look at it. It says the angels in white. And so there must have been this unbelievable, brilliant, radiant whiteness about them, right? A white that's solar, that's, that's, that's like the, the, the brilliant light of that meteor going across the sky of Russia, if you've watched the movies about that. And then we see more evidence of Mary's unbelief and a gentle rebuke from the angels. They said to her, Mary, why are you weeping? So she's still crying. She still doesn't believe. And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where he is standing. <laughs> but you see, that's not what it says. It says, I don't know where they laid him. In other words, he's still a dead body. I don't know where they've laid him. And then this, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there 
and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, how do we explain Mary not recognizing Jesus? Well, it's not that Jesus' body was unrecognizable. You remember earlier you heard the account of Thomas. He said he wouldn't believe unless he could put his fingers in the holes and his, his, his hand in Jesus' side. You remember that? And so when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, go ahead, do it. And so Jesus had a real body, and his real body was able to have fingers and hands poked in him. And so it was Jesus, and he was recognizable. But Mary did not yet have eyes to see. And I want you to note this. In Mary, says Calvin, we have an instance of the mistakes that are common to the human mind. Although Christ offers himself to our sight, we devise various shapes for him so that our senses conceive anything rather than the true Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very, 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 very important thing today. I have a blog I write on, and I write the blog not for the people of the church because they get enough of me as it is. I write the blog for people who are pastors and elders and church leaders in other places. And I try on the blog to describe to people how we as Christians should be witnesses today in our wicked world. And so often what happens is somebody will be Googling for, uh, you know, something that's going on in the news. Who knows what it is? And they'll find my, my, my blog, and they'll come to the blog, and they'll come on. And lately, of course, because everybody in the world is talking about homosexual marriage, that's typically what brings somebody in. And they'll come in, and you can just feel their body wrenching as they go through the, the, the time warp that, that it is to, to show up in a biblical Christian context coming from the wickedness of this world. And what they'll always do is they'll say this, my Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. My Jesus loves people just the way they are. Now that is exactly what Jesus is, what Calvin is making reference to here. Mary looks at Jesus, and it is Jesus, but Mary has fashioned an idol in her mind. And what is the idol that Mary has in her mind right there? The idol that Mary has in her mind, ironically, is an inert corpse of Jesus. And so Mary, having just a really tight grip on Jesus' death, as only a grieving woman can. She can't give up that idol for the reality of her beloved standing in front of her. And listen, that's really pretty easy to understand. Um, an awful lot of people who have been molested as children hold on to their idol of victimhood the rest of their lives and never come to faith in Jesus Christ because they've learned to relate to the world through their pain. And so they will have no faith and no hope. Do you understand how we can get so deep in our suffering that we will not allow ourselves to have faith and hope in Jesus? Now, come on now.
Think about this, people. And so Mary, being wounded, could not see Jesus. He's not dead. He's alive. And he looks like Jesus, but Mary can't see him. Isn't that fascinating? And so I want you to ask yourself, what is your idol of Jesus? Is Jesus somebody that just lets you go along any which way you want? You know, he just, he's just so full of grace that, that you can trample on his blood every single day of your life intentionally, but the grace is greater than you could ever imagine. Is that your idol? Is your idol a Jesus who never ever said anything critical to anyone and certainly didn't call anybody names? Well, I would encourage you later this afternoon to get out Matthew in the Bible and read from Palm Sunday to his crucifixion. Because if you have any notion at all that Jesus just went around like a, like, like a, like a grandpa with little pieces of candy in his pocket Easter afternoon for all the grandkiddies, and, I, and yep, I did buy, I, yes, and I'm proud of it. I, I don't normally do it, but this year, but my wife says I can't give any of them to the grandchildren because I was at an outlet mall where they had these lint, little truffle things, and she says that's not what you give to little, little children. But I think our house doesn't have carpet. We'll see. One, <laughs> Doug says his will get it. All right. Or you will. <laughs> is that your notion of Jesus, that Jesus is somebody who goes around dispensing truffles? You know that that is the predominant view of Jesus in this world. That Jesus never discourages anyone, and yet the rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know how to be saved, and Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. You know, I heard a great, and do you know, wait, I didn't tell you the end of the story. Some of you may not know it. It says that the rich young ruler turned and departed because he was very rich. And then it tells us that Jesus was very sad because he had loved the man. (laughs) This is not a Jesus of truffles, is it? I got a great phone call last night. I got a phone call from a pastor. A couple of us had been working with this pastor to try to deal with incest in a home. And the mother was absolutely determined to keep anybody from dealing with it. She, she wanted to hide it. She was desperately fearful of her home being blown to smithereens, but it, it, it had just spread like cancer throughout the home among the children. And so we had worked with this church and warned them of the opposition that they would have to trying to bring the sin into the open and have it confessed and have have repentance. And uh, I must say, I didn't have much faith that that what would happen would be true repentance. So a young man came home for the weekend, and the elders and pastors were prepared 
And they took him and they had met with uh, his younger siblings earlier and they confronted him with what had been told to them. And I got this joyful call about 10 o'clock last night telling me that the young man was filled with relief. And that he had said to the pastor that he had been waiting years to be out from under the burden. And with some degree of joy, he went down to the police to report himself. And think about that. Think about that. And so people who are proud and will not confess their sin, Jesus is the grandpa that hands out truffles. And is always sweet. And never warns anybody that if any man harms one of these little ones, it would be better for him that a millstone would be tied around his neck and he'd be cast into the sea. And yet that's what Jesus said. And yet a man who by faith turns away from his pride and welcomes the rebuke of the elders and pastors and confesses his sin and goes to the police, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. (laughs) You know, and that's Easter. And so here's Mary, she's got Jesus standing, the one who cast, do you remember what it says about Mary Magdalene? It says that she was the one that Jesus cast seven demons out of. All right? She loves him. Because he released her. And so here he is standing in front of her and she doesn't see him. Why? Because she's holding on to her wound and her pain and her grief. And he's dead. She can't see him living. But of course, Jesus is nourishing faith in this woman, despite her faithlessness. Jesus, verse 15, said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, again, she doesn't believe. If you have carried him away, tell me where he is standing. No, tell me where you have laid him and I. Now, this is, this is really pretty sweet, right? <laughs> I will what? Take him away. Now, how big do you think Mary was? You know, (laughs) she's probably about the size of my wife. In other words, how is she going to carry Jesus away? Just show him to me, I'll take him away. It's Jesus she's talking to. And then we have one of the greatest recognition scenes that there is in all of Scripture. Many of you have been at a, I I suppose, sadly, the closest you've come to this scene has probably been in a movie. Um, It's sad that 
for most of us today, the most real we live life is watching movies. Uh, i never forget at 9-11, what everybody said afterwards was it was just like a movie. That's how bad it was, just like a movie. And so uh, for most of us, probably the, the recognition scene that we remember most is, is from a movie. But some of you have been at an airport or you've been someplace, maybe at a ship, some of you are in the Navy, and you see the reunion of loved ones. Maybe you saw that uh, YouTube video of, of Mary Wagner being surprised by her mother back from Africa. Any of you seen that? Hey, Mary, what's the address? How do they Google that? Where are you? Yeah, how, how do they Google that? Lizzie Kate 90, L-I-Z-Z-I-E-K-A-T-E 90. You're not crying, are you? <laughs> Anyhow, it's great. Type that in and you'll see the wonderful joy and the tears. And, and, and so here we have, look what happens here. I'm going to read it from the beginning of verse 15. She turned around, saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni which means teacher, and then she, she grasped him. doesn't say that except that verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. And then he told her, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Wouldn't you love brother or sister? Unbeliever, wouldn't you love to have Jesus say that to you? Wouldn't you love to have Jesus send somebody to say to you that he has gone to his God and your God, to his Father and to your Father? Wouldn't you love to have Jesus tell you that his Father God is your Father? Huh? Now, I could end by talking about Mary's personal joy in being in the presence of her master, and that's where I was headed in what I wrote for notes for this, but I'm going to end with this statement, my father and your father. The world that we live in today says there is no such thing as a good father. And God has written fatherhood so deeply into your heart that your life will either be defined by fatherlessness and cynicism and pain, or it will be defined by faith in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But you will never be defined by fatherlessness. You will either live your life in the bondage of father hunger, or you will live in the freedom 
of faith in God the Father Almighty. And there, there are only two options. And so what Jesus said to Mary right here, he had cast seven demons out of her. And when he said to her that she had God as her father and then said, go tell the disciples that I am ascending to God, their God. I am ascending to my father and their father. Remember, of those 12 or 11 at this point, because Judas is left, only two of them have come to see what's going on at the grave. And Thomas has said he won't believe unless he is able to put his fingers in the nail holes and his hand in the side. But Jesus says to them that God is their God and their Father. Now, if I were to take you through all the rest of the New Testament, all you'd see again and again and again, even in ultra, uber sophisticated Athens, all right, all you'd see is a repetition of the theme of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And among all the sophisticated people in Athens, when the Apostle Paul tells them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we read is that they scoffed at him. They scoffed. And so, sinner, and that includes all of us, have you seen Jesus? And you say, well, no, as a matter of fact. You remember earlier that Jesus said, blessed to Thomas. He rebuked him afterwards. You remember that? He said, blessed are those who, what? Have not seen and yet believe. And that's what unites the Christians in this congregation today. Is that we have had no other place to go with our sin. None. We have been in such bondage to our sin that we have had no one to go but to Jesus Christ. And for some of us, we've had more than seven demons cast out. Some of us, maybe only two or three. There's nobody here that hasn't had demons cast out. I would speak personally and say, literally, demons have been cast out of me. And you say, really? And I say, yes. And you say, well, wasn't it just like that you were ADD. And why didn't they get you on Ritalin? No, uh-uh, demons. And they came into me through, are you ready? Through, <laughs> all right. To me, they came through drugs and sexual immorality, and rock music. And you say, well, you have rock music here. And I say, not that kind of rock music, to the glory of God. Uh, It was particular rock music I listened to. It was very dark, and it was hopeless, and that's why I loved it. And I could not pray after I came to faith in Jesus Christ, every time I'd pray, these demons would torment me. And so I went to Christian men and I said, 
please pray for me. These terrible demons would torment me. Now, I want you to know I'm not being figurative when I say that many of us have had real demons cast out of us. And some of you need prayer to have demons cast out of you before you can believe. Others, demons is a way of speaking of your bondage to your sexual lusts, of bondage to your greed and your pride. But it wasn't until Mary had her demons cast out, and of course she couldn't have her demons cast out without confessing that she had demons to be cast out. Then she believed and she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so here we have one of the many resurrection accounts in Scripture. And what we see is these people that didn't believe, once they saw Jesus resurrected, almost all of them went to their grave as martyrs for the faith. They were killed. They didn't flinch from this point out. The Holy Spirit came on them in power, and they believed. And so I challenge you today, give up your pride Be humble, and like Mary, come with your demons and your sins to Jesus Christ. Come to me for prayer. I'm not Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But in his name, I will pray for you. I will call elders together. We will pray for you. And God will release you from the bondage to Satan, which is true of every single person before they come to Christ. And then the day will soon come when you will hear Jesus saying to you, Peter, Scott, Allison, Anthony, and you will hear his voice because he is your shepherd and you will recognize his voice. And then you will cling to him, but you won't have to worry about him telling you to stop because he now has ascended to the right hand of his Father. Okay? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your word, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians has said that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray, Father, I pray to this day, right now, that every person here will hear the voice of Jesus speaking their name and that they will worship him as the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of their sins and that they will have faith in his resurrection. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.